0: This morning we continue our short study that we're doing on small letters with a big message. And we're going to look at the letter of 2 John. The elder to the lady chosen by God and to her children whom I love in the truth. And not I only, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It's given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one that we've had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love. We walk in the obedience to his commands, as you've heard from the beginning. His command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you've worked for, that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I don't want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister, who is chosen by God, send their greetings. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we're going to explore some of the points of emphasis in this second letter, And I'm going to summarize those points of emphasis as a truth, a warning, and a way of life. But before I get into that, just a little bit of context. John is probably in Ephesus when he writes this. It's around A.D. 90, 95. Uh, He's old. He identifies himself as the elder. He doesn't say, I, John, in in other uh, letters. You you find the sort of thing as the authors disclose themselves. He says, ha presbyteros, in the... uh, In the Greek, and Presbyteros means elder, and that could be, has two meanings, one who's mature in the faith, or one who's old, and so John's actually starting out being a little bit playful here with his language, with this double meaning, and he's kind of like, I'm old now, uh, and I've got this very, very important message in my old age that I want to give you, and so we have three Presbyteros here at Redeemer, Peter Vlar as Presbyteros, I'm Presbyteros, Rick Limus is Presbyteros, and John is Presbyteros. So see there, you understand the nuances, that's your Greek lesson for today. The double meaning of uh, being the aged. So anyways, he addresses this elect lady and her children, or the chosen lady. And who is this chosen lady? Um, scholarship Uh, most scholarship agrees that this is a metaphor for the church. And some scholarship says, no, this is an actual woman. And it could be because we just read the letter to uh, Philemon last Sunday, and that was to a guy. Uh, But at the end of the day, it was actually not only to him, but also for the church that was in his house. So it is possible this was to a chosen lady. But um, I, I think, based on the research I did, this is a metaphor for the church, and it ends with, hey, your other sister with her kids also says their greeting. And he's being metaphorical, and I think the reason he did that is because in his third letter, which we'll look at next week, he just names the guy. He says, hey, uh, Gaius, how you doing? And so he would have likely just named her. But the significance, the point of this is he, it's super warm. It's such a warm greeting, and he cares deeply, and he's got this important message for this church. And so let's start with the truth. Uh, The truth about Jesus being both divine and human is the basis that binds Christian community and the driving force behind behind our desire to emulate his humanity. And John mentions the word truth five times immediately. Truth, 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 truth. You'd think he's trying to get at something here. Five times immediately, the love of the truth, knowing the truth, because of the truth. The Father's Son will be with us in truth. It's given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth. This is not vague philosophy. This is not just a vague, broad, sweeping, epistemological language. This is a very particular truth that he's very concerned about. And he wants this very specific, particular truth um, to be known in the church and, and kept... All the apostles understand this as fundamental for the binding of Christian community, and that truth is that Jesus was, in fact, God in human flesh. And the significance of this is monstrous, because if Jesus Christ was not God in human flesh, then he really has little to no relevance. He's just another person claiming to be a prophet or an oracle. or I mean, he's just an one of many in a long line of prophets speaking in behalf of God. And that's not to diminish the importance of the office of the prophet through salvation history. My, my purpose in bringing that up is to say, you don't have to bend your knee to Jesus as king if he's not God in the flesh. I mean, if Jesus uh, was what these wayward teachers were teaching. It was a Gnostic ideology, and the Gnostics believed salvation was sort of a secret knowledge. They had the secret links. Most people had mainstream understanding of who Jesus was, but they clicked on all the secret links, and if you followed their Gnostic ideology, the idea was that, well, Jesus is just sort of an enlightened human. God wouldn't become human. Impossible, because the gods want to escape this gross material stuff and live in this ethereal space. So the Gnostic ideology... It wasn't just a different way of thinking about jesus it erased jesus and the same would be true today if he's not god and king if he's not god who came and took on human flesh there's very little to no significance to jesus because you can easily unravel and justify not taking to heart the things that jesus taught or he said or or not live in imitation because you're not then looking at jesus saying well here's a picture of flourishing humanity Jesus is, a, a, is God incarnate. God being abstract becomes concrete so that I know where humanity is actually headed. We're not headed t- towards ultimate destruction where there's no existence in the universe that humans ever existed. We're headed towards renewal and resurrection and restoration. And if that's true, then the life of Jesus is this pathway into congruence of what God's ultimate goals are. So if Jesus was only human, if he's just the champion of the little guy, I can adapt the ideas I like But I can totally dismiss anything that I don't like. And I certainly don't need to change. And I certainly don't need to bend my knee. Because he's certainly not the king. And then that has all sorts of implications, of course. Because if there's no restoration goalposts, then any time anything in the wisdom of God's word comes up against my own desires or appetites or ideas, then I don't need to bend my knee to anything. Because he's not the king. He's not God. Not only that, but it also dislocates Jesus if he's not God incarnate. It it, it dislocates him from thousands of years of redemptive history. What God had been doing through the people of Israel. It dislocates him completely from all of this. That God had chosen the Jewish nation so that through them he would bless all the nations. It just erases um, the whole history of, of salvation and God's goodness through time. So what ultimately, the reason John is hammering this is because what binds those tiny little first century churches together that are very fragile, like little babies in an incubator, what's what, what, so fragile, what is binding them together, it's not social compatibility, it's not political compatibility, it's not class compatibility. What's binding them together is prioritizing that common truth that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Because if that's not going to bind them together, then when the pressure's on... The church will disband. I don't want to take too much time to revisit the pandemic because it was terrible. I don't want to talk about it. But very briefly, those two years, for not just this church, our, this small community here, but for all churches, it was tremendously taxing. It was exhausting. It was terrible. It was terrible for you as members of congregations. It was difficult and straining as we were wrestling with our loved ones, our families, our friends, people across the chairs who had very different ideas uh, about how to handle things, how to walk it out, about polit- you know, political ideologies or views. I mean, it was, just, it was just endlessly exhausting. And it was exhausting for many pastors who were faced with trying to keep a unity in tumultuous times where it felt like no matter what you did or said or wrote, somebody was going to email you and be like, yo, I'm out of here. This church isn't for me. It was terrible. But the church, and I say the church globally, of course it survived. Because at the end of the day, what's binding the communities together, even though there was, during the two years of the pandemic, a great shuffling of the sheep. At the end of the day, there are brothers and our sisters. They worship Jesus. Perhaps they're worshiping elsewhere, but there are brothers and sisters nonetheless. It was a sad and difficult time, but praise Jesus as I speak about this small little community here. What we tried to do over the last two years of the pandemic was keep the main thing, the main thing, the only thing that could bind us together in a scenario where otherwise we would we would come completely unglued. And so it's the priority of who is Christ and if he's king, everything else has to bend their knee to that. That's code read for the gospel, which leads us to the next thing, the warning. And the reason why there is this this huge warning is because Rejecting how God chose to reveal himself was to reject God himself. Antichrist, which is a term that John coined, really. You don't find it anywhere else in scripture. Antichrist was John's Greek way of saying against Messiah. And you find it in John's writings. Uh, Antichrist teaching, it rejects Christ as king and the true means of freedom. And always presents alternate mini-Messiahs, alternate means of freedom. Just has always done that, still does that today. And so the reason why there's this great warning is because hospitality had become an absolute mark of the church in the early days. It was a hospitality that the culture at the time did not understand. The hospitality of the church transcended your social class, it transcended everything. It transcended your gender. Because in the ancient world, the, of course, you know it, it, at the bottom of the priority chain were the women. But then you'd walk into the church and all of a sudden men and women are treated with equal dignity. It transcended slavery and, and master designations, which we spent a lot of time last week talking about. How it's just you walked into the church and you checked your social status at the door. The hospitality was a game changer. And so the reason why there's this warning is because... The church was so small and fragile, people would come into the city, I'm a teacher of Jesus, I'm a preacher of Jesus, and the church would welcome them into their homes and be like, please speak to our small congregation. Please teach us, please preach to us. I've had a couple experiences of, of being welcomed into homes when I was doing various ministry work and, and you're sharing in the whole life of the household. Years ago when I was young, we were working with a, uh, some kids in a school in Mexico. Mexico. And they didn't put us in a hotel. They're like, you're staying with the family. You're going to be submersed in the culture. You're staying with the family. I loved it. It was incredible. The food and the family vibe and everything about the house and everything about the way that they lived. It was just thoroughly enjoyable. I understood hardly anything, but I was like, I realized very quickly that when you're brought into somebody's home with hospitality, it's like you're just embraced by the family. And then they were incredibly trusting of, the, of me when it was time for me to speak to kids, they're incredibly trusting of Susan when she got up to speak to kids. Incredibly trusting, so you can see how that makes an, a young church volatile. If you're going to be incredibly trusting of oh, the person has come to teach the church and to teach the children, and so that's what's going on here. They have there's the potential. That's why he uses the strong language. You, you share in their wickedness because he's like you don't realize what you're doing, but you're giving them a platform. And they're coming into the church and they're preaching their Gnosticism and they're talking about Jesus like he's not who he claimed to be. And this is a mega problem here. Verse 7, the the deceivers have gone out into the world, right? God would not have a connection to the material world. The goal is to leave the material world. All of that nonsense, which is anti the resurrection of the very material, physical, visceral resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which gives us all hope, right? If you're exploring Christian faith this morning, you're not a Christian Christian. Uh, yet, because you've got questions, but you love being human, right? You love sunsets and skyscrapers and nature and science and technology and innovation and friendship and music and art and love and beauty. You love all this things. you love what it is to be human. What you don't love is the paradox that is the human existence because for every beautiful thing we find, there's some horrific, terrible thing going on in the world. I mean, the world is beautiful, but it's also off kilter and we all know this. We all know that everything isn't okay. And so the hope of Christian faith, if you're exploring Christian faith here today, is that, no, actually, in the end, there is a renewal of what God wanted in the beginning. There's a renewal of the material. The Gnostic teaching was, now we're, we're out of here. We're off to some ethereal place called heaven. And John's like, don't let that in the church. Jesus was God incarnate, came in flesh. We begin to unravel the very hope of the gospel. The whole purpose of salvation, of being freed from our sin, we begin to unravel the beauty of the cross, that Jesus is God incarnate who comes in our stead. You know, we have some modern examples of this sort of ideology. I'm not going to spend too much time on the first one, but the Jehovah's Witness movement doesn't confess Jesus as the Christ. I've had many discussions on my porch with them as they come to the house. And I realized after a while that I was like not really fruitful conversation. So I thought I'll just cut to the chase and I'll ask them who they think Jesus is because I know this whole thing is gone. Because they believed that Jesus was... God created Jesus. And so I said, listen, if God did not come and go to the cross himself... Then this is a disgusting God we're talking about. This is like this divine bloodthirsty God... Who put somebody else on the cross to deal with humanity's sin. It's disgusting. Why would I worship that God? But if God comes... I know the Trinity is a mystery, but if God comes and Jesus is who he says he is, and he goes to the cross, he's 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 my substitute. He does for humanity what we could never do for ourselves, which is rebuild the bridge to this glorious and holy God. Not a cosmic killjoy, not a cosmic perfectionist who's just disgusted by humanity and says, Ooh, gross, follow my rules. A loving father that loves his children in the way we're children and knows that apart from union with him, we're going to run off and worship some other mini Messiah, like our bank account, or our toys, or our house, or our vibe in the city, or our wardrobe, or the way we look in the mirror, or our health, or, or a thousand other things we're going to circle our life around and be like, this is the reason I exist. It's too small. And the Jehovah's Witness said, well, it works both ways. It works both ways. Our God is it. No, it's not disgusting. It works both ways. I said, it doesn't work both ways. Jesus Christ has to be God in the flesh. So that's one, that's, you know, a modern example of sort of how that Gnosticism plays out today. But another example of Antichrist uh, uh, kind of teaching, not that they're denying the, the divinity or the humanity of Jesus, but sort of undoes what Jesus came to reunite and to build, is the rampant deconstruction movement, whereby the deconstruction argument, and I really empathize with our folks that go down the deconstruction path, and the reason I empathize with them is they look at the institution of the church and they can very quickly find on one hand five to ten reasons why the church has hurt people or been abusive or been unkind or uncharitable in this city or selfish or there's a myriad of ways in which the church has failed. So I think uh, that scripturally we have good basis for deconstructing things. Deconstruct bad teaching, deconstruct wayward narcissism, uh, whether it's in the podium or in the leadership structure. I mean, deconstruct things that are not like the nature of Jesus. Those things ought to be absolutely deconstructed. But then following that deconstruction, there needs to be a reconstruction so that the church community looks like what Jesus instituted. Because Jesus did institute things. The deconstruction movement will sort of wax eloquent. It'll sound very academic about sort of doing away with this institution. But we can't forget that there are things Jesus instituted, namely his church, namely his people. That spans both te- Testaments. The Lord's prayer is communal. Our Father, give us the stay. He's assuming community. The Lord's table is communion. When you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. That's communal. That's communal. All of the New Testament letters are written to these communities. And so I can understand absolutely why our friends on a backdrop of disappointment or hurt or abuse would say, I got to leave this crazy institution called the church and I'm just going to love God and love Jesus by myself. And I'm not going to deal with the messy, terrible, dramatic opportunity that exists if I have to actually care about the other people in the chairs around me. My goodness, I understand that. Susan and I have been through that pain ourselves. We had to deconstruct lots of things as we left our particular movement. We're teaching the, 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 the particular movement we were in. It was founded on the, the prosperity gospel. God wants everybody rich. God wants everybody healed. And if you're not rich and you're not healed, the problem is your faith because that's God's goal. All of the big American voices were the, the founding fathers of the, of the church we were part of. And we realized that we had embraced all of that. We had to deconstruct everything in 2009 and 2010. We just felt like we fell down the theological staircase, landed at the bottom. We're like, we don't know where to begin, but God's office is at the bottom. Thank God. And so then after that deconstruction of, oh God, please forgive me for the crazy things that I taught, because I was complicit in it. So I'm not angry and firing bullets because I'm offended. I taught that stuff. And so... After that, I had to reconstruct and be like, how do we then as a community love Jesus and love each other and just get back to the some orthodox theological goalposts? And so John gives this huge, strong warning because he wants to make sure that the, the, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ uh, is maintained. So how do we apply all of this? Well, I hope that what we're catching is that the The answer, the application, is not to keep all of these people out of our lives. The answer is to keep the teaching out of our church. It's very good for us to have friends who are from different faiths or of no faith. It's very good for us to maintain relationships and show kindness and dignity and respect. To our family and friends who once worshipped Jesus, but they got on the deconstruction train. And now they're like, yeah, I can love Jesus, but I can dislocate myself from his body. I mean, to me, that's just absolutely nowhere in, 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 in Scripture. However, we don't cut those people out of our life. That's not what this is calling us to do. He's calling the church to not allow the teaching to come in and say, you know, we've got to just update the teaching every couple of years like your iPhone. No, 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 no. This warning is about keeping the cultural ideology out of the church. It's not about keeping the church out of the culture. It's not about us sitting back and holding our noses at Kitchener and Waterloo and saying, well, there's just, too much, there's just too much disagreement between my ethics and theirs. No, no, no. We love these people. We maintain our conviction, according to the scripture, but we love these folks. Which leads to the last thing, which is the way of life. The way of life is the walking out of the truth about who Jesus is by emulating his love. And in doing so, we give ourselves to strengthen this small church community, and be witnesses in our city. In verses 5 and 6, the translation that we read in the English, he says, I'm asking you to walk in love. Some of your English translations say, I'm pleading. That's much better. In the original Greek, it's such strong language. He's like, I'm begging you. I'm begging you to walk in love. Why would he? Why the pleading? Why the begging? Because walking, it means your life is defined by something. It's resembling something. So what he's begging for is that in time, the church would more and more resemble the Jesus who we worship because he is God and king. And that doesn't just mean have sort of emotive, you know, emotional sentiments towards people, and that's love. He actually defines the love by saying, this is love, obey his commands. What? That flies in the face of the modern uh, discussions around love because the idea would be, well, no, love is essentially... My, it's an extension of my affections. And to say that love is to obey commands is a non sequitur. But actually, when you dive into it, what is God's law? And what does obedience to his law mean? You find in the words of Jesus, Jesus says, Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as much as yourself. And you can hang all the law and all the prophets on that. And then later in the text in Romans, Paul writes, And he says, listen, to love others is the fulfillment of the law. So for us Christians... We don't allow the, the, um, the city that we happen to live in at a particular point in time, at a particular geographic location in time to define what it means to love. We go back to the very nature of God and we say, I'm going to bend my knee to your love and your wisdom in my life. It will have a formative effect on the way that I relate to my family and my friends, my politics, my sexuality, my identity. It's going to have a formative effect because I'm I'm going to recognize that Jesus Christ is not just some teacher. He's God in the flesh. And if that's true, then I want to bend my knee to the wisdom of your word so that I can flourish and live into this flourishing humanity and then relate to others in that way, to walk out of that love. And so then this is how his word and obedience to his word has a formative effect on how we relate to everything, our finances, our time. Our generosity—the people in this room, across the seats, not relating to each other on basis of superiority or inferiority, but coming in here and and truly caring about one another, regardless of our backgrounds or upbringings—these sorts of things. And he says, "I'm not giving you a new command. This is fundamental. He's not trying to kick the ladder out and do something new. It's like a, if we're going to flourish, it's got to be fundamental. Modern." Uh, Modern conversations around truth and love in Canada, in the church, changed in the 1970s. When in the 70s, in Canada, the church decided, great swores of the church, as it it, uh, gathered together to become the United Church, great, great sectors of the church decided the Word of God was not divinely inspired, it was more like a guide. And so therefore it could be sort of updated and changed as to resemble the culture because it's not... God breathed. But the way that we look at it is to say, well, no, 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 if it is absolutely God breathed, then I don't kick the ladder out every couple of years and reevaluate what obedience to God looks like on the basis of the culture. The reverse is true. I look to God's word and I allow it to be a guide for my, for my flourishing, and I go from there. If you're a Blue Jays fan, you've been watching Blue Jays baseball lately, they're pretty streaky. And the games that they win in a row, they get a lot of fundamentals put together. And then the games that they start losing, the fundamentals are gone. And the, and, and Schneider's never going to be like, guys, we've just got to kick the ladder out. We've got to kick the ladder out. We've got to shake things up. You. Change all your swing mechanics. You. Change all your pitching mechanics. No. It, everything's getting back to the fundamentals. That's the pathway to flourishing. If you're a Leafs fan... Sorry, that's too soon. Though. You won't even... So it just... You've got to get back to fundamentals. And that's what John's doing in this letter. That's why it's one page long. Notice that You might be thinking, well, Paul, you're talking about flourishing and wise guidance as it relates to identity and politics and generosity and time and love and sexuality. Why don't you unpack all those things for us this morning? No. Because I will infantilize you. I will unpack it in so much as each text teaches it. But notice in this one-page letter, John says, obey his commands, and he moves on. It's a one-pager. That tells me he's expecting something. He's expecting the church who claims to love Jesus as the savior of their souls by scandal and grace, and who is also their king, to be like, I kind of go to his word and bend my knee to it. Not ask his word to bend its knee to me. And here's a hermeneutical tip on interpreting scripture. The parts of scripture we have the hardest part with are not the parts that are poetic and abstract, they the parts that are very clear and we don't like them. I know you wouldn't like that, but I had to say it. So we want to go to the wisdom of his word and allow it to flourish so that we walk out. This is critical to our missional effectiveness in this city. Because our situation here in Kitchener-Waterloo, in this church, it's very much like John's day. Very much like Rome. Where the sexual ethics in the church did not match the sexual ethics in Ephesus and Greco-Rome. And the political ideologies and on and on and on. There's just huge differences. And yet... How in the world did the church grow by the hundreds of thousands and into the millions in just a few centuries? How are there 2 billion Christians-ish, depending on your number, where you go for your numbers. How are there 2 billion Christians in the world today spanning all sorts of cultures, worshiping in all sorts of different contexts? How is this possible? It's because the church went out and they walked in love. They loved their neighbors. They cared for them. They didn't share all their views of their neighbors. They didn't practice uh, everything that their neighbors practiced. In many ways, they were kind of social outcasts, a little bit, in the same way that we are, or can be. But we want to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves and live like salt and light, have that permeating sort of force in the city. But the care from the church, the love from the church, the kindness from the church that the city received, it was palpable. So when you go to work, And those who you go to work with do not share your Christian worldview. Your love and your care for them can be palpable. On campus, your places of recreation, vocation. In the hockey arena, on the baseball diamond, in the park at the library. As we're we're living our small but significant local lives in the city, church, Redeemer us in this community. The kindness, the love, the care can be palpable. They walked in love. So much that when someone does, you know, you do have a conversation, and all of a sudden your worldviews are on a collision course. They've so experienced your love and your respect and your care that there's just a genuine openness in that dialogue and in that conversation, rather than rather than being, you know, harmless as serpents, which would be the back, which would be the reverse of the way in which Jesus intended us to go into the city. So I close with this. This love that the apostle is calling them to. It's, it's practical. It's concrete. It's on the ground. It can be grasped. It's why he goes to Jesus. There's a constraint to love that the, the culture say. Just remove all the constraints and that's love. That's absurd. If you remove all the constraints to love. You, lend, you end up with me first philosophy for life. Me first is the antithesis of love because love at a, love is a curving outward towards others and if I have to remove all the barrier and kick all the people out of my lives that don't agree with the way that I think or feel in order to you know sort of experience this thing that I'm saying is love that's a scoliosis of the soul that's just going to curve me in on myself I'm going to become an angry person I'm going to be a bitter person I'm not going to be a resilient person anytime I encounter someone that doesn't share my worldviews, I'm just going to my conversation is going to be bitey the scoliosis of the soul, but we're curved outward into this beauty that we see in Jesus who sat with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and he, he loved the city and he never absorbed any of, it, uh, any of its values, but he loved with a deep love this beauty that satisfies our souls and it decenters us from being centered on ourselves. May you and I go out into our city with the hope, knowing that we are united to our God and Father by his scandalous grace that there's nothing that we've done to deserve that love. And may we go out with a humility and a boldness and to give a defense and a hope as ministers for the trust and the love that we have in Christ Jesus in his resurrection. Let's pray.